We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 19, and we shall read some verses from the beginning of the chapter, Revelation, chapter 19. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And may the Lord again add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Last Lord's Day, we considered something of the reason for the great joy that is here to be expressed because of the arrival of the marriage of the Lamb. Verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. But you will see that this is in the context of other reasons that are connected with it for praise and for joy. And you will see that in the verses before us, there are basically five particular reasons for this joy amongst the citizens and the inhabitants of heaven. In the previous chapter, there is the great laments of those who are lamenting the fall of the great city, the city of Babylon, the harlot woman riding upon the beast, the downfall of the great system that she represents. Here, on the other hand, there is this rejoicing. The same event brings lamentation on the part of some, but it brings joy and praise on the part of the people of God and those 
who are in heaven. And uh, you will see the repetition in these verses of that uh, word alleluia, which is hallelujah in the Old Testament. Uh, we only find in the Psalms and here in this chapter this word used. And it, it just simply means praise the Lord. That is part of the reason why at the communion we sing the Psalms that we do, uh, Psalm uh, 113 through to 118, the great Hallel, or the great praise, or the great Hallelujah. Now, here we have the reason for this praise being given to God. And the first that we may note is that it is praise to God himself for himself, who he is, what he is, not so much for what he has done, but for what he is. And uh, you see in the verse 1, John writes, After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. Now you will see later in verse 6 how he describes further this sound that he hears in heaven. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters. He's trying to describe what this sound is like. The voice of many waters, like thundering uh, waterfalls, uh, such as the Niagara or the Victoria Falls, this great roar as the water comes pouring over. John is trying to describe it, and he says it was something like that. But then he goes on, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, it was so loud, it just seemed to go on, a great peal of Noise, a tremendous volume of song and praise. I suppose uh, those who attend these great sporting events like football matches and uh, rugby matches, thousands of people are there. And when they give a cheer because their team is winning or whatever, you hear the mighty roar of the volume. That's what John is seeking to describe. There is such a vast number involved in this praising of God. It is a, an amazing sound. And yet, what he has been describing previously, the powers of darkness so active, so opposing Christ, and his church and his people, that perhaps some would have expected there won't be many in heaven. The powers of darkness are so great, and they're influencing so many, and they're turning so many to worship the beast, that there <coughs> surely will not be many to worship the Lamb. But this is the scene. The great volume of praise for God. And uh, why is it? Verse 1, saying, Alleluia, salvation 
and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. What is it that they are particularly focused upon? The great salvation that God is in himself. Not the salvation merely that he has wrought, but he is salvation. This is what the church is recognizing. God is the refuge of his people in the midst of all uh, the evil and falsehood. He is their salvation because of his eternal purpose, but because of this, they are expressing their gratitude, ascribing great glory to him, salvation and glory. Now, in the previous chapter, there is no sign of any glory going to Christ or going to God. All the glory is going to the beast, going to the dragon and the false prophet and so on. But here now we see God being honored, glory and honor and power. They are seeing uh, the great attributes of God that he has purposely activated in order to save his people. And that glorious occasion is here recorded. John is told he's to write this to the seven churches. In the midst of all their trials, they're to remember this. The day is coming when the tears will be wiped away. The sorrow and the affliction will have gone and the church will be redeemed in its entirety and it will be praising God. But also, the second reason why the joy is expressed here as it is is because the great whore has been judged. Verse 2, For true and righteous are his judgments. Now when we've been going through the book of the Revelation, what do we hear uh, on occasions? The cry of the martyred dead. When is their blood ever going to be avenged? When is God going to vindicate them? Now what is the church saying? What are they understanding now? True and righteous are his judgments. And what the church is recognizing is this. He doeth all things well. He does everything according to his purpose. And everything is timed perfectly as he has purposed it and decreed it from eternity. For he hath judged the great whore. The saints might have been wondering, is God ever going to arise? Is God ever going to judge this great system? Is God going to sit back and allow this to go on indefinitely? The persecution of the saints, the witnesses being put to death, is this going to go Now the church is seeing the wisdom of God and the power of God, the glory of God in the way he does things. 
and he hath judged the great whore. But it is in righteousness that he has done so. God is a God of divine justice. And sometimes the saints and the church of Christ have to recognize the importance of waiting God's time. And that's what they had to do here. But eventually, we read, He hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And you can see the prophets and the apostles are mentioned later, the servants of God, their message is rejected, they are despised, they are persecuted. But here's the church rejoicing. God has done things in his own time and according to his own purpose, and he hath now judged the great whore. Now, that is so important that that is recorded first before we come to the verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. You see, she had to be refined. The church had to be refined and prepared. Prepared as a bride for her husband to be presented without spot, without blemish. As uh, you see the apostle Paul referring to. But before the marriage as it were takes place, the great whore has to be judged and removed out of the way. Because remember, the whore is the rival to the bride. The whore is the rival, and the rival is judged and moved out of the way, and the marriage of the Lamb takes place. Now, If we go back to the chapter that we read in Matthew, I want us to pay attention to what is actually recorded regarding the very great trial of the Savior. Why did he come into this world? He came to seek his bride. He loved the church and he gave himself For the church. He loved the church. And he so loved the church. That he gave himself. To redeem that church. To procure that church. To have the great event take place. Of which John is writing here. In the 19th chapter of Revelation. Now, perhaps just for a moment, if we went back to Ezekiel chapter 16, we've referred to it in the past, but just uh, some of the 
verses that emphasize the beginning, as it were, of the relationship between the Lord and his covenanted people. Ezekiel 16, verse 6. When I passed by thee and saw thee. Now, don't you often hear people speak of love at first sight? You've heard that expression, love at first sight. Ah, some husband's going to, the first I set eyes on you, dear, I knew you were mine. Something like that. Now here, what do we read? When I passed by thee and saw thee, polluted in thine own blood. That's not a very pleasant sight, is it? Nothing very attractive about that. And yet, when I saw thee, polluted in thine blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. There's, as it were, the first sight. And it is love at first sight. And yet, what a sight it is. Verse 8, Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee. You remember uh, what Boaz did for uh, Ruth. He spread his skirt over her to protect her, as it were, assuring her he was willing to take her under his protection and marry her. I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness, yes, yea, I swear unto thee, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest Mine. I entered into a covenant with thee. You were not a pretty sight. There was nothing attractive about you. But when I saw you, I loved you. And I entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine. Now, you have to understand that when the prophets were writing and the apostles were writing, their society was quite different to ours in many respects. And before the marriage would take place, there had to be the betrothal, which would last usually around a year. And during that time, the bridegroom and the bride are making preparations. And during that time, if the potential bride is unfaithful, the husband then divorces her, even the betrothal. There's a lot of Christians running around today, and they form relationships and so on, and they even engage, and then they break the engagement, then they get another engagement, then they maybe break it and they do not take 
marriage relationships and betrothal relationships seriously at all. Now, when the Savior has betrothed his bride, she's not very beautiful. She's not very attractive. But the bridegroom is going to change all that. And he's going to clothe her and he's going to make her his queen. She is his now. Now when we come to Matthew chapter 4, here's the bridegroom with a most serious temptation. His trial is so severe that in verse 11 we read of Matthew 4, Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now, there's a tendency sometimes to think, ah, well, yes, it it is written, he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, because when the devil came to tempt the Savior, there was really nothing to tempt, because he didn't have a sinful nature. There were no sinful desires to be stirred up and aroused. Jesus said, the prince of this world cometh, but he findeth nothing in me. There's nothing in me uh, by which he may bring me into a snare. Nevertheless, we see from this just how severe the temptations of the Savior were. And the law of the devil leaves him here, he's not finished with him. You can expect he's going to come back with more temptations, maybe even more severe. Now, what is he tempted about? Remember what we've been reading in Revelation. The great whore seated upon the beast, Babylon, the great city, that is influencing all the other cities of the world, the woman that sitteth upon many waters, upon many peoples. This is the whore that is to be destroyed. Look at what the devil does here in Matthew 4. Verse 8, Again the devil taketh him up, into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. What are the laments all about in Revelation 18? The glory has been destroyed. The riches of God. All that was so desirable has now come to nothing. The merchants are lamenting. The kings of the earth are lamenting. The great men that were mere rich are lamenting. And they're lamenting in the cities under the control and the influence of Babylon the Great. Now then, look at what the devil does to the Savior. He takes him up into a mountain 
and he shows him all that John had seen or was seeing. And what does he do? He makes an offer. All this will I give you and in addition the glory of them. I will give you that. Now, if he'd have given it to the Savior, we wouldn't be able to read what we read in Revelation. Because Jesus, who came for his bride, would have sold his soul, as it were. I'll give you all this and the glory. It'll all belong to you. If you do one thing, you bow down and worship me. What does the dragon do? He, because the Savior rejected it all, he then gives it and the power of it and the glory of it, these kingdoms of the world, he gives them over to the beast that arises out of the sea and the beast that rises out of the earth. And he gives the glory of it to them. In other words, this is the same offer, or is the offer of what we read, the great city of Babylon having power over the kingdoms that here Satan shows to the Savior. I'll offer you what in reality will be depicted in Revelation, symbolized in the harlot. But he didn't come to make a harlot his. He didn't come to enter into a covenant with a harlot. He came to redeem his poor people, to take his church, to redeem her with his own blood. He loved the church and he gave himself for it. And I think we often read this and just pass it over. Well, it was a very severe temptation. And if Jesus had accepted the offer, he wouldn't have had to die. He wouldn't have had to bear the cross. He wouldn't have had to shed his blood. That is all true. But you see, Satan was offering him that which he did not come to procure and to redeem. He came for his bride. He loved the church. But there's the temptation. It would be much easier as it were, to take this offer. It won't be as costly. All you will have to do is bow down and worship me. I want worship. When we come to Revelation, he now gets the worship. But it isn't from Christ. It is from the Antichrist. Now, here over in Revelation 19... There is this great joy, salvation, and glory, and honor, and power unto the Lord our God, because he has judged the whore, 
He has put this rival out of the way. He has brought her down. He has judged her for her immorality. He has judged her because of her sins and the nations and the kingdoms that have served her and have been subject to her. He has judged the great whore. The rival is now out of the way. And the marriage of the Lamb takes place. They, in verse 3 again, they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped a God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Worshipping the one who's in the throne because he has ordered and ruled well. And he has preserved his church and he has kept covenant. Remember what we read in Ezekiel 16. I entered into a covenant with thee and I said, thou art mine. What kind of a covenant does God make? What kind of a covenant does he keep? You go back to the uh, book of Exodus uh, where Moses is sorely, sorely tried because of the conduct of the Israelites. Exodus chapter 32. Remember, God has called Moses up into the Mount to give him the law. But while he's there, the Israelites engage in fearful activities. So much so that God's wrath is kindled against them. Verse 7 of Exodus 32, we read, The Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down. For thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And they have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereon unto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt in a short time. They're apostatizing fast from God. What does God say? The Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That's one thing God obviously again and again when he refers to it, it is something he will not tolerate. It is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Now what did God tell Abraham? He told Abraham when he entered into covenant with him, that he would make him the father of many nations. And he would bless the nations of the earth through the seed of Abraham. 
Now what's he saying to Moses? My anger is so kindled at this stiff-necked, stubborn people, this self-willed people who are ready to depart from me so quickly, forgetting what I've done for them. Let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them that I may consume them. And I will then take you, Moses, and I will make a covenant with you, and I will make of you a great nation. How does Moses respond to that? He might think, well, what a relief. What a relief that I don't have to carry the responsibility of this people any further. What a relief if I can forget them now. I will avoid the heartaches and the pains and the grief going through the wilderness. I will avoid all that. But no, Moses responds very differently. Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why? Well, God has just told him why. Yet he says, Why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? You go back up to verse 7. God said to Moses, Get thee down for thy people. What was God saying? I hold you responsible for them, Moses. You brought them out of Egypt, you led them, and I hold you responsible, you to account to me for them. Moses comes back to God and he says, Ah, but they're thy people. And he says, Why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt? And yet God has said, you brought them out of the land of Egypt, Moses. Moses says, no, God, you brought them out of the land of Egypt. And you brought them out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. And then for the sake of time, go down to the end of verse 12. Now what does Moses argue? Turn from thy fierce wrath. Imagine speaking to God like that. When God has just been justifying his wrath. Moses argues, these are thy people. Why are you so filled with wrath against them? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of the evil against this people, which are thy people. Then this is his great argument. Remember. Remember. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are Israel. What's he doing? He's going back to the covenant. And he's saying to God, remember the covenant. You cannot break your covenant. You entered into a covenant 
with Abraham, with Isaac, with Israel, you cannot break it. And he reminds God of the details of the covenant. Whom thou remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest. When God swears, he can't change his mind, he can't change his terms, he can't change his covenant. That's what Moses is arguing. Remember, it was your covenant. It wasn't a covenant that was established by Abraham or by Isaac. You entered into the covenant with them. And what did you say? Whom thou swearest by thine self, thine own self. You didn't even ask Abraham to swear. You didn't ask Isaac to swear. It's your covenant. And said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. That's the argument. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now we're not to imagine God changed his mind. What God is doing is testing Moses. And God is testing Moses to see how much confidence he has in God. And it is that covenant that Moses knows secures the destiny and the future of this people, even though they are stiff-necked even though they're so rebellious. And God says, I've seen them. Moses says, yes, but remember the covenant. You can't break that covenant. And God knows, you're right, Moses, I will not be breaking that covenant, so I will not make of you a great nation. I will adhere to the covenant. And you see that again and again, even in the New Testament, when the Savior comes to this scene of time and he's coming to seek his bride. I think I referred to this maybe a couple of weeks ago back in Matthew's Gospel and there in the chapter 23. Here's the very city where the Savior is rejected. He's crucified, he's despised, he's rejected. And this is what he has to say in verse 34 of Matthew 23. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues. persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. That is a most fearful statement. All the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel 
unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily or truly I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, not Rome, not any other city, Jerusalem, killing my prophets, killing my servants that I have sent unto you. I oft would I have gathered you, you stoned, you killed, you stoned them which are sent unto you. How oft would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Why? Because you're stiff-necked. Because you haven't changed. You're still stiff-necked. When I sent my messengers, you won't listen. You reject them, you kill them, you stone them. Verse 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. What a solemn state to be left in. And yet, look at the final verse of this chapter. For I say unto you, yes, your house is left desolate. I would have gathered you. You wouldn't come. You wouldn't have me. You crucify me. You despise me. Yet ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Why does the Savior utter those words? Because of the covenant. They're still stiff-necked. But as Paul says, even in the midst of that, there is that remnant still preserved. And if it weren't for that remnant, we wouldn't even have the gospel today. If it were not for the remnant that had been preserved, the Gentiles would have never heard the gospel. There would have been no gospel for them. But God always remembers his covenant. The covenant that he made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob or Israel, he still remembered, and there's the Savior speaking of it. You're still stiff-necked. You're still rejecting me. You're still rejecting the prophets. But one of these days, you will be saying, Blessed is he that cometh. In the name of the Lord, that will change. Instead of rejecting, you will be saying, Blessed is he that cometh. And you see how God, in fact, when you go to what Paul writes to the Thessalonians, you will see there just how severe the judgments of God really are, even against this stiff-necked people. First Thessalonians verse or chapter two, verse fourteen. Ye brethren, 
became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. In Paul's day, he recognized, and he himself was a Jew, they are persecuting the gospel and the servants of God. Verse 15, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. What a character to have. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. What a statement. Now you can see just how utterly, utterly undeserving these people are. And yet God does not forget his covenant. You might also look at the epistle that Paul writes to the Romans there in chapter 11, chapters 10 and chapter 11, references are made by Paul to this people that are generally still in blindness and darkness. Romans chapter 11, uh, well, chapter 10 at the end of it, verse 20, Paul is quoting from Isaiah, and it seems, although there's this time passing between the days of Isaiah and when he writes, and now when Paul is writing, this long period of time, and yet it's as though Paul is saying, nothing really has changed. He is very bold, saith, I was found of them that sought me not, I was made manifest unto them, that ask not after me, but to Israel. He saith, All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Why did God not consume them? Why did he keep stretching out his hands? Because of the covenant. That's why even though they're still not receiving, he still holds out his hands because of the covenant that he will not break. And Paul, later in the chapter 11, reminds the Gentiles as to why they were broken off out of their own olive tree because of their unbelief, their stiff-neckedness, their rebellion. But what does Paul say? Even their condition in his own day, as he's ministering to the Gentiles, carrying the gospel to the Gentiles, he says in verse 25, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Why is it a mystery? Why is it a mystery that God keeps stretching out his hands 
Why is it that he's so patient? Because of his covenant. And Paul says, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part, blindness in part, it's not a universal blindness. It is a general blindness, but not a universal blindness. Blindness in part, or hardness in part. There's always this remnant that God spares until his covenant promises are entirely fulfilled. That's all there was in Paul's day. Just a remnant and the rest were blinded. And then Paul uh, says in verse 28, the reason for this as concerning the gospel Now, how solemn that is. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies. Can you think of a worse state to be in? At enmity with the gospel. And yet, though this is the case, they are enemies concerning the gospel, but as touching the election. They are beloved for the Father's sakes. What's Paul saying? God will never forget his covenant. That's what he's saying. He will keep his covenant. He will preserve his covenant no matter what. And he will keep on holding out his hands. And he will keep on calling. He will preserve a remnant while the majority are left in blindness, opposing the gospel. They don't even want it to go to the Gentiles and so on. Nevertheless, as Moses argued away back in the days of Exodus, remember that covenant. Though your wrath is kindled, God, remember the covenant that you made with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. And when we come to Revelation 19, we see how faithful God has been to his covenant promises. The marriage of the Lamb. He now has his bride complete, Jew and Gentile, are now united. They are as one. And they're now the bride of Christ. But they are the prepared bride of Christ. Notice what we read. Let us rejoice. Verse 7 of Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice. And give honor to him. Give honor to him, to the bride. No, to him, the bridegroom. Give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Now you have to go back to John's society, to John's culture. And marriage was a very protracted business 
in John's time among the Jews. There would be great preparations. I suppose we still have in the marriages of today some remnants of the customs. The best man, actually, we talk about the best man. He wasn't referred to as the best man, of course, in John's day or Paul's day, but he was responsible to a large extent for getting and an, an, obtaining a wife for the groom. So if you want a wife, look for the best man to help you along. But when the bridesmaids, as we would refer to them today, they were considered the friends of the bride, and it was their duty to prepare her and get her ready for the great event, to have her all uh, looking like a queen for to meet her husband. When the time came for the actual ceremony, then the groom would go with his friends to the bride's home to receive his bride and bring her then to his own abode. The bride, of course, wore a veil. That's where the veil comes from in weddings today or marriages. And as they journeyed to the bridegroom's house, they would be singing and they would be happy because the event is taking place. Somewhere along the procession, bride's veil would be removed and it would be laid on the shoulder of the bridegroom. And then they would quote the words and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Quoting from the Old Testament. Quoting from Isaiah. Now what was the significance of it all? that the government for the new family and the new home was now in the shoulders of the bridegroom. As the government of the church, the bride of Christ, is on his shoulders. It is so sad when the world comes sweeping into the church bringing in so much paganism and heathen customs into modern marriages and wedding ceremonies. When we see how in the past the, the Paul speaks of it when he's writing to the Ephesians. Herein is a mystery. And he speaks of the relationship between the heavenly bridegroom and the church, which is his bride. And he is the head, we are told, of the woman, the head of the bride. The government rests on his shoulders. Woe be to him if he doesn't take that government seriously. The government shall be in his shoulders, Christ's shoulders, to rule the church, to govern the church, 
to be the head of the church. And when the church makes herself ready, what does that mean? She's ready to be received by the bridegroom, submitting, taking her veil, placing it on his shoulders and saying, the government be upon his shoulders. You look at the mess the church is in today. Where's Christ's authority? Where is his authority when it comes to the worship, the government, the order of the church? Where is it? Abba John says, the wife has made herself ready. She's now ready to be received. We were singing of it in Psalm 45. How beautifully she appears to be received by uh, her bridegroom. Now we're told that to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Even yet, the bride is dressed in white because she presents herself to her husband in purity. Alas, 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 what a lie on the part of many today. They do not present themselves to their husbands as pure. And alas, many of the husbands are no more pure either. But here is the church depicted, arrayed, ready to be received by our heavenly husband, arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And here it refers particularly to their godliness, their personal godliness, the righteousness of holy living, holy practice, holy works. She has made herself ready in holiness. She is sanctified. Here's the church, presentable to be presented in a sanctified state. But, of course, it was granted to her that she should be arrayed in the Old and New Testaments among the Jews, you have the Savior making reference in one of his parables to the situation when the king came in to see the guests at his son's wedding, and there was one of the guests had not on the wedding garment, and he was cast out. How camest thou in here without the wedding garment? Because kings and princes and wealthy individuals they provided the wedding garments for their guests. That was part of the whole ceremony. And here we're told that the church is it's granted to her that she should be arrayed. It's as though 
She deserves to be arrayed. It's as though the bridegroom himself would have her arrayed in garments that are pleasing to him, his own provision, and that is nothing less than the imputed righteousness that he procured for her to clothe her. You go back to Ezekiel 16. How did he find her? Cast out in her blood. How does he take her now? She's arrayed in garments that are clean and spotless and white. He himself has arrayed her. And there when she presents herself, or is presented or he takes her, he is absolutely 100% satisfied and pleased because everything she is, he has made her. Little wonder this joy is so great. Little wonder there is this thundering Sound of joy because of this great event that God has kept his covenant right down through the centuries until the church is completed and the power of the gospel is made known and the church is now rejoicing. But as we shall see John is told, right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. How are they called? They're called in the gospel. And every time you hear the gospel, it's a call to that marriage. Blessed are they that have that gospel. Blessed are they that are called under it. But blessed are they who are effectually called so that they attend. Blessed are they in whom there is this work of the Spirit of God that brings about the union between Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, and his poor bride that is so unworthy in herself and yet so pleasing to him in the end. There is so much of wonder in this scene because it is a scene that is brought about at the end of so much that has been in opposition to it ever happening. And therefore the church is saying salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. The thing is, will we be at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Will we be there? Or will we be like the man without the wedding garment? He was cast out because he disowned Christ and dishonored Christ. He didn't want his provision, his garment. He wanted his own. May God forbid it. Let us pray.
gracious and eternal God, we thank thee that thou art a covenant-keeping God, and how encouraging it is to thy poor people when they stumble and when they fall, and even when they feel themselves so unfaithful. Yet the covenant stands as it was with David, so it remains the covenant ordered in all things and absolutely sure. O grant us, we pray, to be looking to that glorious one who is not only head of the covenant, but head of the church and the head of the bride. Bless thy word, pardon us now and receive us for Christ's sake. Amen.